Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus, as you're familiar. Um, I'm here again this week, but it's a bit of a different episode. I think if you've been listening over the course of the summer, um, I did a bunch of episodes on the U.S.-China strategic competition and what's going on in India related to that, what's going on in East Asia related to that, how the Australians uh, are viewing this. So today we go to Latin America. And we go to a country in the south of where I am, uh, in, in Mexico, um, and, and understand what's going on over there. And the trigger for this particular episode uh, was an interesting article, which I've linked in the description uh, below in Bloomberg, about the boom in Mexico and how nearshoring, which is basically supply chain shifting out of uh, China in particular, uh, coming into Mexico, causing a boom there, but also causing other issues. And if some of you may know, Mexico has its own set of challenges, both in terms of its politics, violence, cartels, etc. So I figured this would be a great time to invite my dear friend and colleague uh, to the podcast, Beatriz Navarro. Uh, Beatriz is a lawyer and international public affairs specialist. She's also a former appointed diplomat uh, who was representative of the Ministry of Finance and Public Credit at the Mexican Embassy in the United States. So she is somebody who understands Mexico really well, was there recently as well. Um, and we're going to be talking to her about uh, helping, uh, asking her to help us understand uh, what's going on in Mexico. Two women will be running for president of the country in, in a few months. We will talk about that. We will talk about a populist president. I remember when Bea and I were working together, I would often joke with her that leader statements confused me because I didn't know whether it was the Mexican president or the Pakistani or Indian prime minister saying certain things. So we have that memory as well in terms of how that region is so similar to the politics of Mexico as well. Uh, so we'll just jump right in. Bea, first of all, welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you so much for taking out the time. Um, and I just want to ask you, starting off with this Bloomberg article, which I shared with you as well, a boom happening in Mexico, nearshoring Chinese supply chains, shifting into Mexico, the USMCA being the driver of this in terms of where things are going. How are you seeing things in terms of the US-China competition and how Mexico is perhaps getting the advantage of that in terms of investments coming in? Interesting times. Times. Thank you so much, Zaid, for inviting me. I'm so I'm thrilled and honored uh, for talking about Mexico in this context. Well, to answer your question, I think that I'll say, yes, geography matters, timing is crucial, and like it or not, um, this this tension, this Cold War, as the article says, is definitely um, bringing good news to, to my country. Several factors have contributed to the growth of nearshoring in Mexico, and probably the question should be like, why not before? Well, uh, it's been for a while that Mexico was is, is an attractive option for companies looking to optimize their supply chains. I think that uh, the pandemic just showed how vulnerable and fragile these are. And therefore, there was no other option but really look to the nearest uh, neighbor, right? And there you go, that was Mexico. Um, the proximity to the United States was is definitely something that uh, got exposed because of the pandemic, the trade agreements, and then that time time has died, and we have a skilled workforce in Mexico uh, that we've been 
that this interestingly and probably different than what the current president will say, this is not something that happened like from in one day. It's a it's the result of like broad policy of of NAFTA of integration as North America. And that also brings another advantage that Mexico has. That is like a cultural understanding between, because like it or not, we are North America. Um, cost savings, this the, the very, very, with its trade-offs, the truth is that um, the basic, the minimum salary in Mexico hasn't really increased too much. Therefore, it is like, a, um, um, a, a labor cost uh, warranty, um, quality standards, infrastructure, all these things finally, finally attract the foreign investment needed. But then we have the highlighted, the major story, which is Nuevo León, no? the one that is framed in this article of Bloomberg. And Nuevo León, Monterrey, is a very specific case for Mexico. Um, first, it's geography, no? It happens to be the neighbor of Texas. And if data, actually, a couple of weeks ago, the ambassador of Mexico in the Wilson Center just pointed out that if we could put together the economies of, of the border, just the 10 economies of the border, we will, they will, no, we, I'm not in the border, but they will be, like the fourth or fifth economy in the in the world imagine no it's like, like finally they're so close but what has happened also in in Nuevo Leon is that they have been following a very interesting branding exercise the the governor has been a from an influencer his wife is a charismatic figure and they've been really attracting an verbalizing, vocalizing that they're just going out to bring investment to the to the to the states. And well, with this big opportunities that are going on, obviously they are certainly risks that Mexico that Mexico needs to be aware that maybe we'll talk a little bit more about in your next question and more in context with Mexico. Yeah, that's a great overview, right? So the border region obviously is very dynamic and, and it's also now on the flip side, as you said, the governor going out and seeking investment. There's also tensions there with Texas and stuff on other things, which we can get to in just a moment as well. Mm -hmm. But again, you look at the market and you look at where the investments are coming in. Obviously, one of the things that stands out, for example, is auto manufacturing. And now you have Tesla building a factory there and that exciting people about, okay, the next wave of auto manufacturing in Mexico on EVs will be basically really powerful as a driver of innovation in the country. Um, mm -hmm. from, from that broad sectoral point of view, what are some sectors beyond auto that you're seeing um, where Mexico really is shining? And again, you mentioned skilled workforce, et cetera. What has Mexico gotten right, broadly speaking, to really take advantage of this unique post-pandemic U.S.-China competition opportunity. Because again, it's not just the free trade agreement, right? It's that has been there yes. for a while. So what really has clicked for the country? Well, yes. Let me re rephrase and zoom in. 
it's not only like the manufacturing and automotive industries. And it's like Tesla, obviously, because it's Tesla and all would, uh, what encompass has trained a lot of media attention. But the truth is that like from information technology and software, uh, IBM, Tata services, uh, uh, Pharma, Johnson and, Johnson and Johnson, Pfizer, uh, Walmart, Amazon, like these, these companies having already nearshoring in, in Mexico and increasingly doing so, uh, financial services, food and beverage. Um, I, I think that nearshoring, like any, any business strategy comes with its own sets of risks that on the light of what we have learned in the pandemic of companies we're facing during the pandemic, they just make their own formula, their own assessment, and realizing that well, there's certain risk that that Mexico has that they were willing to 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 take. What are those risks? Well, they, they are labor market challenges. They are regulatory and legal issues. There is a lack of transparency in certain uh, ways and relationships with authorities. Yes, it is. Um, and yeah, well, certain intellectual and property concerns, I'm just, just thinking no, on what are like, and well, definitely the, the topic of crime, crime and corruption, crime and corruption. And this uh, latest one, corruption, even when against what the president of Lopez Obrador is uh, still believing corruption is not something that you can just eliminate by saying it. There's no more corruption in the country. There were a lot of, of measures, reforms, initiatives, um, investigations, judicial reforms that needed to be made, and he didn't. Uh, and he focused only on this narrative, internal narrative, no? Of, of trying to say that, that there was no more corruption, but the truth is that out there, companies do consider in their own assessment um, this as a risk for, for, for continuing or expanding nearshoring as a business strategy, to be said. Yeah, and, and I think the corruption element was super interesting because I know when he came into power and we were working together, I was trying to understand the fourth transformation and what was the core elements. Corruption always came up in terms of what he was trying to do. Um, so for those of us who, in the audience, who don't really understand what AMLO represents, tell us a bit about him, his movement, the Morena Party, and what was the driving force behind this idea that, you know, here was a populist of the left, essentially, who said he's not going to live in the presidential palace. He tried to sell off the plane, um, right? He talked about indigenous. We talked uh, about that in the, in the similarity talk, with the right? Pakistani. Yeah. Exactly. So all of those things are relatable to the audience of ours here on the podcast, which is South Asian, primarily Pakistani, that, you know, I'm not going to use public resources for my own benefits. And that is corruption, so to speak, to do that. Yes. Help us understand the moment in time that led AMLO to become president. What does he represent in Mexico? Yeah. Oof, talking about AMLO is kind of talking of a, it can be, it should definitely be a TV show. 
if someone is listening to this in Mexico, they're going to be like, don't give him ideas. <laughs> but yeah. Well, he yeah. already does long speeches every day. Yeah, so imagine. Like, we just need to put together his daily speeches and there you go. Like, probably a TV show for uh, 20 years. No, 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 Abed. Uh, he, AMLO was a candidate for several years. Uh, well, he, he's been in politics all his life, right? He was... Um, context for Southeast Asia audience. Um, even when democracy is new in Mexico, Mexico had the same party for more than 70 years, the PRI, the Partido Revolución Institucional. Even the name, it's, it's an oxymoron because it's Institutional Revolution Party. Weird. The institutions <laughs> in revolution all the Revolutions time. Revolutions and institutions don't go together. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that, that's how the story, you know? starts and he was a member of this party that for several years and this is not like to blame him but it's because everyone who was in politics in Mexico back in the time must uh was part of this party then it became like the opposition so other parties but there were other always like negotiations and and the president in power used to solely point out discreetly in a sort of um, a ceremony that it was called the dedazo who will be his successor so there was no really campaign it was people was just paying attention I mean this was a discussion that my parents had I mean everything changes just in the 2000s with Vicente Fox no um so in, in this way, the uh, alternancy, the change in, in power, the, like active opposition and different political powers as to say a mature uh, democracy is fairly new if you, if you consider this in Mexico. Having said that, what happened with, with AMLO is that... Um, because of this practice of fake democracy that we had in Mexico, it's very natural to AMLO to find in his speech to deny institutions and to deny elections and to deny the, does this sound familiar as something that happened in the US? Uh, to deny actually uh, the results of a fair election. But the what happened here in this part of the story that I'm not saying is that within the transition of one political party to others and the evolution of democracy, institutions actually got consolidated. Among them, the Instituto Nacional Electoral, National Electorate Institute. Um, with that, all the, the, the pride and the authorities and the scrutiny and the process, the democratic process and the elections little by little mature, mature so much that he actually won the elections successfully. And it was acknowledged and it was like kind of big, <laughs> not kind of, it was huge because after years of him, he tried to be, well, he once declared himself uh, elected president before taking power. And he actually made a whole ceremony um, in downtown Mexico, declaring himself like as an alternative president. And he was there doing a strike. Uh, I'm talking this with uh, 
Presidente Calderón. So this must have been 2000, I don't want to lie. I think that it was 2005, 2003, the elections. Um, I don't want to lie in the, in the hmm, 2006, exactly, in the 2006 elections. So having said all this, when he arrives, he's not humble. All his movement, because he was in campaign for years, for decades, uh, he was not only a, an opposition. He came out with this movement. Morena, was, which paradoxically means dark skin, like a woman of dark skin, you can call it Morena. Morena, the dark skin woman also, La Morenita, it's also a way that Mexicans call the Guadalupe Virgin, a very Catholic country. And this Guadalupe Virgin is a syncretism between the Spanish and indigenous beliefs. So check out all the elements of symbolism, right? That he always brings together. So, but Morena, the, the, the acronym also comes from Movimiento, Movement of National Regeneration. So this is not a re-evolution. This is not an evolution. This is not a transformation. It's like a regeneración, like rebuilt, no? So Sounds like make, make America great again. But even better, like from our DNA, that, that's big, no? It's like we were on one path. Let's take it where we were and make it better. Um, people had asked me, actually, as of today, people keep asking me, sorry, but what is the thing of the 14? And as, as time goes by, <laughs> as much as I just tired to say, you know, is <laughs> his way, his not so humble way of labeling himself and his party as the next and only way that Mexican history should evolve. He says he understands that in Mexican history, there have been three major moments, historical moments. One, the, the in Mexican independence from Spain, right? When we became Mexico. Second, the Guerra de Reforma, like the separation of state and church. Then the Revolución Mexicana, like, uh, um, and his movement will be like the fourth, the one that we were waiting for. That's the way to move forward. Hmm. Whoever follow his campaign, he, I think, I still believe that whoever wants, whoever does not understand, does not get yet why he won is because then hasn't fully understand the history of, of Mexico. He really point out and he make a perfect diagnostic of what was wrong with, yes, with technocracy, with, the, with this disconnection of certain highly corrupt elite yes that it exists that that is not like an invention of his mind yes it existed in exist in my country uh and then well the latest president enrique peña nieto whatever his administration was because that will open the window for another podcast 
the truth is that it was profoundly superficial the way that he communicate with with the constituency with its electorate uh opening the window then for like a, a savvy politician as he was to make a perfect uh diagnosis of what was wrong in Mexico giving hope again to this to, to yes to all the poor I don't even want to say poor like probably to the most romantic part of a society even the nationalists uh he has traveled the country he traveled the country as no one else has done and he actually moved members of the elite of the intellectual elites he had the support of of um of private sector as well and well he became president right and now, four years later, and what we're if seeing... You, before you go to the now, if I may ask you, and you mentioned uh, Peña Nieto, the last president that, that AMLO sort of succeeded from. One, also explain while you do that, the uniqueness of Mexican presidential politics in the sense how terms work. Because again, for South Asian listeners, there are no term limits. So I would love for you to get into that a bit as well. But my understanding, and if I'm wrong, correct me. And if I'm right, just elaborate a bit on this so that viewers understand the corruption of the corruption scandal of the Peña Nieto regime and the president's own corruption help people understand what happened over there so that they also can contextualize that. You know, for example, the reason why I ask this is in the Pakistani mm -hmm. case, when we were working together, Imran Khan was still prime minister. Um, Nawaz Sharif, the former prime minister, got embroiled in a corruption scandal through the Panama Papers. And that really changed the dynamics of politics in the country in various ways. We don't need to get into that. But I mm -hmm. felt that Peña Nieto scandal also played a similar role in terms of opening the door for AMLO. So I would love for you to explain a bit about uniqueness of presidential politics in Mexico and that corruption of that regime that, again, connected people more with AMLO and Morena. Yeah. Uh, tell me something you said. Are Mexican soap operas popular in Pakistan? No. No. <laughs> I mean, we, there are in... soap operas. They're similar. I've seen some they telenovelas are, huh? and stuff, but then people don't watch exactly Mexican yeah. television. Yeah, I, I know that like in South, other South Asian countries, um, the reference is soap operas, but I'm bringing these because <laughs> President, former President Peña Nieto was married to a soap opera actress. Uh, Angelica Rivera was the name. And I'm putting all this flavor in the story because it matters. The scandal was as follows. Uh, there was a house. Once upon a time, there was a house, a huge mansion, a white house in Las Lomas outside Mexico City. Um, similar with, I, I want to be very careful with the description, but in what it seems to be a conflict of interest, one of the main beneficiaries um, and who, who wore uh, uh, bits of public infrastructure projects happened to be the the own the one who sold the house to the actress. <laughs> so it wasn't the owner wasn't President Peña Nieto, but it was. This, this actress, right? This former soap opera actress. So even when she was the legal owner of the house, 
um, this company of, of this uh, very similar, like the Panama Papers, uh, no, yeah, pa Panama Papers back in the time, or Odebrecht style, because it was kind of in the same wave. Um, it, it happened that the actress said that, no, 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 it's not my husband, it's mine. But then in a uh, uh, journalist, Carmen Aristegui and her team went and find that, well, that in fact, the property was still ownership of this, um, this company that was benefiting from a lot of the public infrastructure investment that was going on in Peña Nieto. So there was like clearly a conflict of interest. In the midst of the scandal, rather than continue with a proper investigation or whatever. The house, by the way, it was like $20 million. It was something ridiculous, the value of, of the mansion. Another White House, right? And also, it's a lot of another White House and a White House, whatever. Um, long story short, the, the actress went out publicly to give a statement, but the statement, rather than be explaining what could be misinterpret uh, misinterpretation she basically performed <laughs> and lectured all citizens for daring to doubt that she as a soap opera actress could have managed to have such a big fortune and therefore buying the house that it was a perfectly normal house that she liked i mean this was there there's a phrase no in 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 mexico that is, could be translated as the drop that split the glass, kind of it. Um, raising eyebrows, people was like, like this, this is it. And to be honest, there's nothing cultural about corruption in Latin America, nor in our countries, because then people think to say, oh, well, because uh, there's certain like cultural acceptance to corruption. No, no. That's not the case. What is cultural about corruption is the threshold of tolerance. I think mm, in other countries for less than that, there was the case of Chile back in the time with Bachelet started with something of the, a minimum amount comparing with this. And the scandal was uh, for misuse of office supplies. So the threshold is still a scandal, still corruption, but the threshold varies from country to country. Let's just say that in Mexico, the threshold was pretty high already. $20 million high. <laughs> yeah. And, but it got, went beyond the amount. It was all the, the, yeah, the show, the mediatic campaign that was behind. So fast forwarding it, um, part of the campaign of Lopez Obrador has been like, okay, so what we need to reduce is the perception of corruption, but not corruption per se. What does this mean? This means that the president and his team are not realizing that corruption is not as simple as he has repeatedly say, do not lie, do not stall to the people and just be a, a good human being. No, it's where more complicated like that. And concepts such as accountability, transparency, integrity, judicial reform are completely 
out of his mind. And mainly, and this is the paradox, because even when he represents the institutions, he does not believe in the institutions of the past. He wants a regeneration, you know, start from scratch. And then the question is, how come even with this context, with this guy, foreign investment keeps going to Mexico and Mexico still like, as we've seen, the super peso, no? We have one of the strongest currencies in the world. And Explain to us, how, how, does that, how does that happen? You have a president who's populist, left wing, against institutional mechanisms, but continues I, to get investments from all over the world. Yes, and my, my this is this is my answer to your audience with the freedom of being Mexican American, Mexican for a while, and then that I have been away from my country for a while, for a while. I feel that it's because let me put it in this way. I just read this book about integrity. And they start saying like when you go to to an airplane, if you travel recently, or maybe if you have traveled, you know that we all need to go and like have this annoying five minutes of the the stewardess telling us all the security measures that we need to do just in case, just in case uh the plane crashes, right? And well, some people pay attention, some don't, some like whatever. And then the plane is just going to about to, to to leave. And then we hear the captain saying, okay, people, we need to stop because there is a technical issue and we cannot fly. So we are just going to review that, but don't worry. We are in control. The 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 plane is gonna is gonna leave soon. We we will arrive to our destination. This book, by the way, is completely in another topic, but that reminds me a lot to Mexico and corruption and rule of law and to explain exactly this question. How come in this mess and Mexico still being one of the strongest economies in the world and still being like a, path, a paradox, actually with a very, very, very small debt after COVID, for good and bad, like some, some economists says that that's really bad because that means that money hasn't been properly invested in other things that could have generate uh, productivity. But others say, no, no, no. Why do we want to be in debt? Look at other countries, Argentina, for instance. So we are, ugh, regardless of this technicality, I think that the answer is because Mexico is this old airplane when where people is very used to be almost ready to go somewhere to reach our destination but then we have someone saying like but hold on hold on we need to check the integrity of the plane because maybe we are not ready to to fly yet that is exactly what's going on in my country and has happened for several years we are ready we have we have everything we, we can compare ourselves with turkey years ago with india um but, you know, even when we are ready, it seems that we have the fuel, we have the passengers, we have the plane. We haven't taken the time yet to take seriously that exercise of checking uh, the integrity of every single part of the plane. 
to say that we're ready to fly. Um, so on the light of the new elections, and given how important it is that the relationship between the US and Mexico is not, and, and this is maybe another great point to highlight for our audience, that for despite whatever we can hear in the media, <laughs> there's no other relationship more important for the US than Mexico, probably Israel for other reasons. But Mexico and the US are intermestic relationships. They're, they're deeply um, unmeshed. So on the light of this, the, the, what the economy, economy issues that are happening in the US, the elections and what's happening in Mexico, we are gonna have elections. Lopez Obrador delivered. What he delivered? A speech of six years. <laughs> we listen, he really truly believed that he eliminates corruption. He he made his dream of making this new airport. And then, well, other things that I don't want to go point by point in this, but for for his base, he delivered, no? And he wants to continue this transformation. And then for some others, he didn't because we still have corruption. We still have crime. The We're, we're still ready to, 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 to go somewhere, but he didn't make the exercise of checking the integrity of all the parts of our plane. So we're still there. Now, what to do for not losing the momentum? What to do? And in in this story, it happens that two women are here. Like, I just want to put this in context. In a highly Catholic country with one of the highest levels of violence against women in the world, the closest country to the United States with all this, an important economy, all this that we have talked about and we have. On the one hand, Claudia Sheinbaum, a Mexican, Jewish women running for left, for the left, uh, part of the of Morena as elected or chosen as the old party used to do by Lopez Obrador. And on the other, we're having this phenomenon that reminds me a little bit of what happened in Nuevo León, by the way. Xochitl Galvez, who's an indigenous woman with a fantastic, inspiring story as well. Someone who comes like from, from, from the bottom and both like leading preferences and ready to start the, the, the very long and very complicated because in Mexico is super long. It's a super show, uh, very long to start the, the elections for 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 president the president and it's it's a one-term presidency for six it's years It's one term of six years no re-election so it's a long one term therefore um the, the 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 trick here is if the party in power wants to continue uh whatever they made continue its plan like this is the case of lopez obrador First, the internal election, just like just like kind of in the U.S., the internal election is super important because that candidate is the one who's going to receive like all the support. In this case, even from the president, right? Because he keeps saying like, what matters the most is the continuation of this 4T. 
And then in this continuation of this 40, then it's like this schizophrenic, because what does it mean? And what does it really mean for the US and for the world? Because here it comes Russia, and we go back to the beginning of the, of the program. Here comes Russia, and here comes China. Uh, not only Mexico, but Latin America, the, the Chinese diplomacy, the dragon diplomacy, it's more and more present. And not only that, Russia, uh, with this kind of ideals of left, of going back to communism, Marxism, uh, some even groups of intellectuals in Mexico had publicly support uh, Russia uh, in this war in uh, against Ukraine, publicly even when, well, we all, all the context and Mexico is so close to the U.S. Uh, some reporters, Dolia Esteves here, um, Guajardo in the case of, of China and Dolia Esteves, former ambassador Guajardo, has been super clear like, okay, given the Cold War between the U.S. and China, this is a top moment economically for, for Mexico. Nonetheless, U.S. wake up because China is more and more getting more and more and more strong than ever in this region. And on the other hand, well, Dolia has reported and some and the Washington Post has reported like the major infiltration of Russian spies in the world is Mexico. Mexico City is a hotspot for spies. This is not the first time that actually happened. Explain why that's the case, by the way, and why this is not the first time. Because again, to a lot of people listening in, this is news. How is, what does Mexico well, City offer to Mexico. Russian spies? Yeah. yeah, this is not the first. There's a beautiful book about this, by the way, uh, called Modern Modern Tango, I have it here somewhere. Ah, there was, I just read it. But uh, why? It's because when the Cold War was happening, Mexico was key. Imagine, geography matters, right? <laughs> and Mexico being so close to Cuba, we received a lot of influence from, and also some people said that the Partido Revolución Institucional, the old party, has the spirit of a communist party. Revolutionary, Mexico, yeah. Yeah, Mexico, it's like, for Mexico and Latin America, unions are not necessarily uh, sins or synonyms of communism, not. Uh, bear on mind as well that what differentiates Mexico so far from Latin American dictatorships is that on the one hand, yes, so close to the US, uh, the market, but never has publicly kind of admit its call for a more communist idea. Even when we have its influence in the arts, in, in history, in architecture, like we, we, there's a strong tendency, a strong um, assimilation, even Roman romanticism. The Mexicans have romanticized the idea of communism, the aesthetic. <laughs> Some of the feminists believe, feminist movements believe like, yes, communist was the way, without forgetting that that's not the case, nor communist, nor capitalism have been like the exit for, for women, but that's another topic. 
Uh, so historically, Mexico was always um, seduced by this idea. And there was a moment in the 40s when Mexico needed, actually, the president needed to decide. Like, we're there, and if Mexico had opened the door to communism, the domino effect in the region will have been inevitable. Inevitable. And therefore, one of the biggest threats for the U.S. had always been to preserve not only a good relationship with Mexico, but keep them in control. So then we have, there are a lot of documentaries and stories about like CIA infiltrations in Mexico, spies, toys, one against the other. Because of that, because it is in the interest of the United States to keep Mexico online and have communication. No? Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And I, I think mean, now that explains also the origins, particularly of NAFTA in that sense, right? That to integrate and become interdependent Canada obviously the more nicer neighbor to the United States but particularly with Mexico have that development go south to build that relationship post the Cold War makes a lot of sense um the, I integration. Wanna, the integration yeah and I want to get to sort of like where we are now you already mentioned the upcoming election and and two things before we go to the election one thing I want to also have you elaborate again because I think it's relevant to the audience, particularly our audience from Pakistan. AMLO comes in, you already talked about the superficiality of the anti-corruption message, right? Which is very similar to what we hear in Pakistan now as well, that if the leader is not corrupt and is has integrity, then all the structural things will automatically fix themselves. And you and I know that's not how corruption is dealt with in a society where corruption is deep. Um, but the perception among people is that at least the leader is honest and you explained that. But the other thing that we've seen and I have read about, and again, elaborate on this and correct me if I'm wrong in understanding this, is that AMLO's strategy in terms of giving more space to the military, in terms of the cartels and the violence and the mafias, what has happened over there and how do you see that? Because again, when I read about Mexico and AMLO's populist message and then the space he's given to the military, it rhymes a lot with what I've seen in Pakistan as well, where a prime minister comes in and he's on the same page with the military and sooner rather than later, the military has ousted Imran Khan now. We all know that. Uh, how did it play out in Mexico? Why has AMLO given more space to the military in, in, in his tenure? Qué difícil pregunta. And how nice, how, what challenging, and, and I appreciate the opportunity of talking about this. Well, I think there are two things. One, that as I told you all his life, he diminished any kind of institution, the paradox, right? Paradoxically, <laughs> maybe, or maybe it's in his DNA because of the... Uh, institutional revolution that he has like had in his mind all the time but all his life he says that all state institutions are corrupt period after Ayotzinapa and this is this is key and if you want we can do just a small parenthesis to briefly talk about what was Ayotzinapa the murder of 40 students um, in Guerrero which was super big around the world uh, 
people blame the state of the disappearance and mur murdering of these 40 students. Among those who blamed the state and those in power was AMLO, right? And he talked, he has talked several times about how corrupt are the, the police officers and like civilian police institutions. So to be coherent with his speech, he find in the army, on the one hand, like the only institution that it's not corrupt. Like that's it, like, because it's the army. That sounds very familiar. Yeah, so that's it, that they are the only ones. But it's very interesting that uh, he has gave the army concessions such as the airport, no? They are the ones who are now like, and he keeps pushing for the, for yes, the militarization of the police, which back on the time with Calderon, the president of the more center-right, never really right, never really left, center-right um, PAN, Partido de Acción Nacional, the former president, he criticized, he criticized like it will be a um, violation of human rights to have the military on the streets. Little did you know, that is what he's saying, because he keeps arguing that the El Ejército is to protect citizens, period. As simple as that, citizenships, period. And as per his strategy, This is my, I'm not an, I'm, I, I, wait, I would love to be an expert in security, uh, but I'm not. But I do know, what I do know is that since the Iniciativa Merida, then again, the collaboration of intelligence and putting together like a more wholesome strategy against organized crime, which this happened with former President Calderon, since then, as of now, what has get broke is like interinstitutional coordination, intelligence, cooperation, not only within Mexico, but we go back to the United States, but within the United States, with the United States, right? Uh, that has been little by little like broke. I don't want to say completely disappear because I don't know. I, I hope that it's still going on somehow. Cooperation, intelligence, there must be. But what he wants to say, he, 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 AMLO is already jumping and comparing us to Colombia and kind of already going and talking, trying to bring peace. But he's missing a lot of, of steps to go and, and act as a peacemaker in a conflict area. First, that he has never acknowledged the existence of the conflict in several states of Mexico. Second, that he he's, I mean, during his government, two times he has backed off of his um, actions because organized crime has showed the power of, his, of their weapons and display like what they are able, capable to do if the government don't do certain things. By the way, as we're speaking, you hear that yesterday, um, well, I don't want to talk about narcos now. <laughs> um, but 
and he rather cooperates. He even has said that all this display of violence is nothing but that. A display of violence addressing kind of marketing, addressing competitors, but that it's not against the state. What? Like he has said that publicly, kind of denying the fact that people being murdered, killed, and and affecting tourism. Because for the first time ever, there were shootings, not only in, Mex in the Mexican airport, but in the Cancun airport, in Tulum, and like in hot spots, like global hot spots, Los Cabos as well. So we have there a challenge. We have, we have a fuel hole that needs to be addressed either for by this president and mark my words, I think that this, this conflict is going to definitely nurture some rhetoric in the U.S. elections when they talk about border control, saying that for good or worse, and there's some truth on what they're saying, that Mexico has not been able to control the problem of cartels. And then on the, on the Mexican side, I'm eager to hear what both uh, Claudia and Xochitl are going to say as their strategy. Because if they don't bring back, <laughs> bring back the basic concepts as intelligence, cooperation, like a strategy rather than negotiating with cartels, this this seems like a very very complicated situation. Yeah, and 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 thank you for elaborating that because again, it it it's it's familiar the idea of sort of denying the rise of organized crime or organized militancy in the Pakistani case. Um, it's it's similar again. That's why I wanted to have this conversation with you because. There are just so many parallels here um, that I think the audience has been appreciating through this conversation. Last question um, before I let you go. Um, elections are coming up. You've already mentioned two women contenders. I don't think Mexico has ever had a woman, a woman yeah. president, right? So this is going to be a historic moment um, as well. Tell us a bit about that sort of outlook for elections in Mexico. Where do you see things going? What are the key issues? One thing you and I have talked about, for example, is, you know, the crazy and insane amount of violence against women in Mexico, which again is a parallel in Pakistan. Pakistan, the data tells us that uh, one in four, if not one in three women experience some level of physical or emotional violence since the age of 15. Mexico has super high rates of uh, murderous violence against women as well. So it's relatable to me as well, knowing that data in Pakistan. Um, what are the key things that you're going to be watching out for as the presidential campaign heats up? And what are the broader expectations in Mexico from this campaign that's coming up? You know, these, these, these years, as you know, I've been obsessively following what are really the policies that at the policy level, what has been made for, uh, for equality, for dignity, basic dignity of women in my country. And I am, it's another paradox of Mexico. Mexico is a leading example on gender um, 
public financial management has to say. It's one of the, I think that if not the first one, if not the second one, Latin American countries with more programs and budget assigned for towards like women, women, women and girls uh, issues, no? What they consider issues, um, challenges. Um, it's Mexico City. It's one of the most progressive cities like liberal cities in the world, in the world, uh, from abortion to uh, recognition of LGTB rights, no? And the paradox, the tale, the thing is like, despite this, or perhaps because of this as well, it's, I, I was comparing Pakistan and Mexico. It's, and they, we're only three points apart Sadly, Pakistan won. It's one of the countries with more domestic violence towards women. So Me Mexico, it's in an index of uh, 12%. Pakistan, 17, 18%. Um, and, and, and yes, the violence against women, feminicidios, um, it's evident. It's obvious, right? Some people argue, and rightfully so, that the tendency in conflict societies is that women are women and children, obviously, are the ones who will suffer the most. Now that the front line of this violence. Uh, yes, there's also like this profound, profound culture, cultural issue in Mexico. Um in terms with, with with women and probably in the world. So all these just to put in context of what to expect from in this country for having two women contenders and so close to the US, like if we do it, not even the US has done it right yet. And we will, what to expect? Well, first that they embrace that they are women because not for having a woman in power that means that it's going to be left progressive. I mean, just look what's going on in Italy, you know, for, for instance. And not for having a woman, that means that it's going to be a feminist progressive or, or that she will take um, women rights as their, as their, as their goal, as their main goal. Not, not necessarily. Um, I will expect that both of them, on the one hand, Claudia Sheinbaum, uh, the, the, the one close, the Morena candidate, I think that she will eventually needs to differentiate herself in a very smart way from the AMLO rhetoric in, in order to get enough support. And I think that she will only do that change a little bit the 40 continuation rhetoric if she ever feels really challenged by the competitor, which will be Sochi. And then Sochi <laughs> needs to needs to move a little bit more than being just uh, a charismatic candidate uh, because we all Mexico already experienced Fox. And AMLO, enough with good candidates. There's some 
technicals that are that are needed no some like technocracy is highly appreciated as well um yeah in in my country so i think that they both will need interestingly uh very different than what happened in the last election that in order to win you need to like radicalize more in this case they both need to move a little bit more to the center from what it's bringing them to the to 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 this run to this election in order to keep the the game moving i don't know it's going to be very interesting to see what's happening despite regardless what happens morena as, as we as we've seen morena is there for real is there to stay um the most important states at local level are still morena and they're still um any foreign investment is any companies thinking on going to mexico they will have to learn to deal with how to cope with 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 this party that pays attention to every single <laughs> detail and symbolism but when you're trying to execute it they will be um more more liberal than any american liberal that we have ever known so that's interesting yeah no it's a uh, it's mexican politics just you know the little that i know from you is just so fascinating and it's 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 just one of those things right like we have elections in mexico as you explain us coming up india is going into elections bangladesh is going into elections indonesia is going into elections pakistan is supposed to go into elections it's just going to be a lot of elections um and a lot of transition and i think what we're seeing around the world is a big transition right now populists have won the last four years and have sort of you know disrupted the traditional way of doing politics and now there's an opening in different parts of the world for different kind of transition so we will see where it goes and there are so many parallels and so much things to learn from so i'm so happy you took out the time to share uh with us what's going on in Mexico and how it's similar or not so similar to South Asia in that sense right and last question before i let you go i always ask my guests this you already mentioned a couple of books so maybe you want to just repeat them but what are two or three books uh you would like to share or recommend to the audience hi like recent books or like anything that you know that you think is should it be an important read for people on any topic well if anyone of your audience is interested it's it's uh this not so clear conversation about mexico uh it's of its interest i think that a good way to understand this intense mexican identity will be reading the super famous octavio paz the labyrinth of solitude book which he i think that we need to update it by the way i'm i hope that one day one can write a book that it's called like the the exit to the maze or something like that because in that book he deeply explains what it really means to be half hispanic half indigenous and really like mexicans we are aware of that mix that profound mix and how does that makes us act as like the soul of the nation as a national identity uh super it's 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 a fascinating fascinating exercise where the author um kind of extrapolates his own analysis psychoanalysis to a national analysis but it's beautifully written and 
even when it's a very uh, male prose, is it's really enjoyable. So that will be one book. Another one, well, of course, uh, and I'm sure, actually, I think that another guest of yours have already mentioned it, Sapiens. I recently uh, finished it from uh, Juval Noah. Completely changed my mind. I read it while I was pregnant, by the way. So um, the the author a, makes a, basically a Bible on the origins of our species, of what it really means to be human and the power of, in a fascinating, scientifically fast, beautiful way, he, for me, he, he really explores a, where human mind can lead us, no? And what's the limit and how we are impacting the world overall. Um, and one that I've been recently rereading because it truly changed my mind is, I don't know if you heard about it. It's The Golden Notebook of Doris Lessing. Uh, she, she, she won the Nobel Prize, a British uh, feminist. And in th this book is the story of, of Anne, uh, a woman uh, who's recently divorced and she's very happy with her kids. But what the book is really about, it's about compartmentalization, how to be a, a woman, to be, a, to be fully a woman, you cannot disconnect from the political and social context of your upbringing. And how that really is gonna impact every single aspect of your life, of your femininity. And it's called the Golden Notebook uh, because within there are other four <laughs> notebooks. Um, it's just beautifully written. It's highly, it's not complex. It's like uh, getting to truly female psychology in a very liberating way. Uh, well, I like, I think those will be my No, th thank you for those recommendations. I've not read uh, two of them. I've read Sapiens. And interestingly enough, I've been uh, almost, I'm almost done with this book called The Dawn of Everything, which is a much thicker book than Sapiens. Than Sapiens. I've heard, yeah. I've, how is it? It, it? It's really good in the sense that it sort of, it in different parts disagrees with sort of the guns, germs, and steel argument or some of the sapiens arguments but what i loved about it was less the fact that it made me rethink something like sapiens which is always great in a book right it makes you rethink something you think is amazing as well but more importantly i think what i loved about it was how it weaves a narrative uh, something you and i have previously talked about as well of the fact that there is a lot of history about indigenous culture that is not taught to us, that we don't see as history because it did not exist in the literature that many of us were taught. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it gets into this idea that, you know, for example, like in the first three chapters or something, it gets into the fact that European conversations of liberalism, what it means to be a free man, right? In that, the conversation of that time, actually, came out of the conversations colonizers in North America were having with indigenous people of this continent. Because the indigenous people of this continent would look at the French and the British coming in and be like, you guys are crazy. 
you're not free. What does it mean to be free, right? And so that question came out of that engagement. And that's how it went back into Europe as a debate. And that was the birth of European liberalism, as this book argues, right? That's just one example. Fantastic. So I'm gonna, I'm it's, it's, gonna read it. it's a wonderful read. It's, it's more academic than Sapiens. So you have to kind of digest it slowly. I'm still not done with it. I've been slowly making my way through it. I'm almost done. Uh, but I think, say, you reminded me of the fact that Sapiens is an excellent book. And I would say the dawn of everything is a good accompaniment to it because it's a bit of a different take on a similar story about humanity. So with that, um, Bea, thank you so much for your time, for your insights. Uh, again, maybe as the election draws near and we know more about these two wonderful women uh, who are running for president of Mexico, um, we will bring you back on to explain to us who's about to win and why and what their big agenda is. So until then, uh, have a good night and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Saeed. Seriously thrilled for having this conversation. I hope that I was a little bit clearer than what my mind was <laughs> to our well, You were great. You were great. And uh, and yes, looking forward for another opportunity. Maybe now it will be great that you come to a future podcast to talk about Pakistan to Mexicans. Happy to do that. Thank you. <laughs> Good night. Thank you, my friend.